Okay, welcome to episode 16 of the Bike Pack Canada podcast with yours truly, Ryan Corey. Uh, today's interview comes right after my fantastic chat with uh, Megan Dunn, so, so not a lot of news to report. Um, coming to you today from uh, Casa de Corey, and I, I'm now realizing as I'm looking down the table that uh, we still have the puzzle on the table. So news to report is that we're very slow at making puzzles around here because I think it was still here when... Um, uh, Joanna from the Banff Festival was over, and I think we've done probably four pieces since. Um, so news to report is uh, uh, not much pr- progress on the Corey puzzle. Um, interview today is with uh, Tim Johnson, and uh, he is the manager of uh, the Patagonia in Banff. At least I think that's the right description. He'll he'll fill me in here. Uh, my connection to Patagonia, um, if I think back here, it was probably... The first, first time I, I really kind of connected with some of the staff behind the scenes was during my um, book tour. So for a Purpose Ridden, this would have been back in uh, probably July 2015. Um, so my my last tour stop, so we went all the way across Canada. It's pretty unconventional. Book tours don't really happen anymore. Um, but we paired it with a tour with Hammer Nutrition, so giving fueling talks uh, all across the country. And uh, our last stop was at the Patagonia in uh, Victoria. So that's also where uh, Rocky Mountain Books, my publisher, is located. And um, the guys there were, were tremendous. It's Mark, I believe, that Mark. manages that store. And uh, they, they had popcorn, they had beer, uh, set up a, a cool little spot inside the store for the talk. And uh, you know, a few of the staff came out. And uh, we were all excited last night, and uh, I think we had uh, no one show up. Um, so, you know, it was one of those kind of humbling um, experiences that I was getting quite used to with, uh, with launching a book. You know, sometimes the room's full, sometimes uh, no one's there. You never know, right? It's a Wednesday, it's a Monday, the weather's bad, the weather's nice. Uh, there's, there's always an excuse, but uh, had a great chat with the guys, and uh, that was actually the first time I purchased my first puffy jacket. And uh, anyone that knows me, um, I, I live in the thing. Um, it's just it's comfortable. Uh, it's like second skin to me now. Um, and uh, once I moved to Canmore, I uh, reached out uh, through mutual acquaintance to uh, Tim, um, at the Banff store about, uh, we just kind of randomly chatting about, uh, ideas that we could partner on. And I think the first thing we did was a bike packing one-on-one talk. Um, and we had a good group out for that. I think there was like 10, 15 people out. Um, so pleasantly surprised. That was my first time, um, presenting that material. Um, and then we had, uh, Tim back for the summit, uh, in October, uh, where he shared some things that he's, he's going to talk about today, and uh, you know one of the one of the kind of my proud moments of the summit was I think uh, out of all the partners or sponsors, uh, I think Tim walked away with possibly the most swag of anyone <laughs> in the whole summit, including attendees. He, he had the the he won the the maybe the grand prize, the big green guru bag. I don't know. Did you get some bar mitts too? I, can't I got remember. the I got the seat bag. It was a big prize though. Like it yeah. was yeah, pretty yeah. awesome. Cool. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, let's start there, Tim. How, how did you come to, to work with uh, the, the Banff store, Patagonia? Yeah, great. Well, um, I guess my, uh, my time out here in the Rockies started in 96 when I came west to uh, ski and work for the ski resorts for what was to be one winter. 
and that turned into many winters of working in the ski industry. And uh, I was kind of just ready for, for something new, and I saw an, I literally saw an ad in the paper uh, that a Patagonia store was opening in Banff and thought, uh, gosh, why hasn't there been one here earlier? Um, so I just uh, threw my, my hat into the ring, and uh, having never done retail, I didn't really expect much of uh, anything to come of it. And uh, a few weeks later, I was, I was hired on as the manager. So the Banff store opened in 2009. And um, it's the second of three stores. We're actually owned by a Calgary family. Um, so a fellow named Wayne Geis, he started the Patagonia Calgary store first in 2003. Um, he's been a longtime fan of the brand and, you know, an active like climber and skier in his younger days. And um, so he started Patagonia Calgary. So the Banff store was the second store to come on board. And then our third store being Victoria, where you did your uh, your, your talk, um, opened two years ago. So um, as an independently owned store, uh, we kind of fly the, the Patagonia flag in Western Canada uh, for quite a long time, going back to 2003, which is long before um, there were any corporate stores uh, in Canada. So yeah, my, my uh, connection essentially was being a fan of the gear and never being able to afford it when I was young, but kind of living vicariously through the catalogs, which are like very image driven and, um, you know, always just had a lot of respect for the, their philosophies and, uh, and the few pieces of gear that I did have that came out West with me, um, you know, still, still have now. So when the opportunity came, uh, to uh to get on board I, I applied and was surprised to get an interview but uh here we are seven years and a bit in um managing the Banff store and it's a great great fit for the valley here so how many uh do you, do you know how many of the corporate stores now exist there's in Canada? there's two in Canada there's Toronto and Vancouver okay that have opened uh within the past five years I think Toronto first and then Vancouver okay. and then there's a few other indies like us in Whistler and Halifax that are privately owned Oh, okay. so there's not that many. So I, I, no. I got the, I have this perception that there's one in every town, the base where I live. I, you know, yeah. I see more of them, but yeah, uh, no, it's. it's I mean, you know, a, a U.S. company, um, their presence in the U.S. obviously much bigger. More of their own stores, uh, and again, a lot of privately owned stores like us in resort towns in Colorado, for example. Uh, a lot of Patagonia stores are, are privately owned there, but. Um, yeah, even though we're not a Patagonia corporate store, I think, you know, our values are the way we run the shop, the prices, the warranty, everything's the same as the corporate stores. It's just that we're, uh, we're owned by a Calgary family. So I was just thinking in, in Banff, like you probably get a lot of traffic just kind of out of the, where you're located and a lot of foot traffic going down the main street. Um, do you, do you find that tourists or, or people in the area come to Patagonia specifically for anything? Because like I know just down the street from you, there's there's North Face and right. a couple other kind of similar stores. Yeah, we're we're definitely off the beaten path. We're a little bit uh, out of the main shopping strip, just really one block away from the busiest two blocks in town. But it does affect uh, the amount of feet we get through the door versus say North Face or Minodes. But it's definitely a brand that has its fans and its followers. So, um, yeah, we're finding our, our traffic has kind of grown organically over time, just as more locals know where we are and uh, have the gear on around town. More people are, are aware of where we are and they, they find us. We don't do a ton of print advertising or anything, but uh, yeah. In the summer, especially with more people walking down to the river, we get more, more traffic. It can be pretty quiet in January, though. Just Some that, days. that one intersection. <laughs> that one intersection, that one light. You know, there's... Uh, yeah. 
Huh, interesting. Um, okay, so we're, we're going to kind of go all over the place here. Um, so um, I, I thought it'd be interesting to cover some of the material you talked about at the summit. Um, so you talked about kind of some of the principles of, of layering. And uh, I believe you kind of also delved into the, the material, like the history of the materials, um, um, or, you know, like why people use certain materials for layering and how that kind of evolved. Do you want to get into that chat? Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a neat area. Um, I think one of the cool things with working with Patagonia is that, you know, they had a lot of what are considered firsts in the outdoor world in terms of apparel. I mean, if you go way back to the beginning, initially they were a company that mainly just built, um, tools and hardware for climbing. So pitons, axes, hammers, and, uh, it was sort of in around 1970 when they started getting into the clothing side of things. So, you know, at that time, the, the, the fashions for climbing Yosemite would have been maybe like some, some old dress pants and thrift store button down shirts. Um, yeah. people were still wearing like cotton and wool and down were sort of the main uh, ingredients for any outdoor wardrobe, uh, in the mountains. And Patagonia, um, Yvonne Schwenard that started the company, he, you know, he was a tinkerer. He still is. He loves like coming up with new ideas and, and trying to be truly innovative. So the transition from him making like what were considered the best sort of climbing tools at that time, to clothing um, started initially with him just kind of making stuff for himself and friends where he wanted to have gear that lasted longer. Um, so, you know, some of the first products clothing wise that had the Patagonia label were still being made with cotton and wool. Um, you know, he would have like these corduroy knickers that he, he found this fabric in Scotland and it was just this indestructible, really heavy duty corduroy that he thought would be great for climbing in because it was like very durable, but it's still cotton. So it gets wet and it retains moisture and you, you get chilled very quickly. And then, you know, they would climb in rugby shirts as well. Another thing he found in Scotland that he loved because they were overbuilt to withstand the rigors of rugby. So then they had like the collars that would protect their necks from racks of gear and ropes and stuff. Um, so kind of those early days, like through the sixties into the seventies of climbing, it was still very much cotton and wool and, and down all materials that absorb a lot of moisture and are slow to dry. So I guess one of the first breakthroughs, um, for Patagonia was, was thinking about different warm layers and, and they looked to, um, North Sea fishermen and the idea of like really thick, uh, fleece pile jackets, like made of a synthetic, uh, basically like a fake fur type material. Um, so it just so happened that, uh, I, I think it was Yvonne's wife, Melinda. She, she found, um, some old material that a company called Malden Mills, which is now Polar Tech. Um, they basically had rolls and rolls of this old, like toilet seat cover material. I don't know if anyone like knows about that. It goes back. You don't see them much anymore, but like really thick kind of plush toilet seat covers. It's like this thick fleece. Anyway, this Malden Mills company was on the brink of like bankruptcy and having this big sell-off of materials. So um, the Schwenards bought this uh, thick pile material and crafted some of the first um, fleece jackets out of that. And they're really hideous in terms of appearance. Like they pilled horribly. Um, the cut was like really kind of boxy. But um, technically, compared to wool and cotton, uh, if they got wet, they would still be very warm. They would dry much quicker. And um, they they quickly became kind of a new norm for outdoor gear uh, in the sense of being a much, much better alternative to wool and cotton. Um, so that was sort of like a, a really advanced 
mid-layer at the time. Um, and then the next sort of step was trying to find a next-to-skin layer that wasn't cotton. So, you know, as great as these pile jackets were, when you had a cotton base layer underneath, you'd still absorb moisture and get cold. So um, polypropylene was another material that they first worked with uh, to make base layers. And um, it's a material that's used in a lot of marine applications because it floats. Um, so it's it's water-hating, meaning that it would, you know, dry pretty quickly and not absorb a lot of moisture. But it also did absorb a lot of odor. So Polypro is known for being like horribly uh, stinky and very offensive to anyone you're sharing a, a hut or a bivy with. Um, so, you know, they got they got away from the uh, the Polypro. Um, Yvonne was walking around a, a, a trade show in Chicago and saw a company that was promoting this fabric, this polyester fabric for football jerseys. And polyester on its own is very smooth, but this company found that by uh, etching the polyester that it would have a, amazing wicking properties to really move moisture away from the skin uh, to the outside of the fabric. And Yvonne immediately thought this would be a great base layer application. Um, so that's kind of where the idea of um, polyester base layers, which Patagonia branded as capilline in a reference to the capillary action that you know the moisture takes as it moves through the fabric. Um, so yeah, the the capilline base layers, then the thick pile mid layers, and then some early sort of precursors to Gore-Tex and some outer shells that had uh, a bit of a, a membrane inside to help with breathability were really the foundations of like what they called a, a layering system. And they educated people about layering using a you know a wicking base layer, uh, a warm mid layer, and then your outer shell that would protect you from wind and rain. So. I think it was around 1979 in their catalog that they introduced this this layering concept, which is kind of, you know, still to this day, sort of the go-to system, a good base layer, a warm mid-layer, and then your outer shell for, for outside. Well, the, the parallel to bikepacking compared to, to climbing is, is kind of similar in the idea that you, you don't have a lot of space to carry a lot of gear. So, you know, at the summit, we had this talk because we were emphasizing that, um, you can do a lot with a little, right? And like just being very smart about a three layers. So like a wicking layer, a warming layer, and uh, essentially a protective layer from like wind and, and rain and, and all that. So um, yeah, this, this is, uh, you know, definitely uh, good information uh, to have. So um, ha- have things, have things kind of slowed at this point as far as the evolution of it all or where are we at? Like, are there many innovations I think, yeah, no, there's still still a lot of innovating. And I mean, Patagonia is not the only company coming up with uh, new materials, new ideas, hybrid constructions using different fabrics. But, um, you know, most recently, like a, um, synthetic mid-layers as opposed to down, um, you know, Patagonia introduced, well, your jacket, the Nano Puff, um, that came out in 2010. And it was really wanting to have a piece with the warmth and compressibility of down, but that would be much better in wet weather. Um, so the, the insulation in that Primaloft is like a very, very efficient insulator in the sense of absorbing little moisture. Um, so that was like an, a pretty big advancement going from like down being the, the main mid layer or sorry, the a main insulator for like really warm high loft garments going to this synthetic insulation that had the warmth of down, but uh, had the wet weather performance. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a pretty big thing. Um, you know, maybe 10 years ago, we started to see more of the synthetics coming on. And then now you're getting into um, stretch synthetics that, you know, offer the same properties, but have much more kind of dynamic movement and stretch to them. So for sports like climbing or skiing or, or cycling, we're, you know, having some 
give and the fabric is really, really cool. So when I got the jacket, I can't remember how Mark sold me. I don't remember if the synthetic discussion came up, but it's, I'm glad I went that route. Cause uh, you know, I'd never had a puffy jacket and I, I, I don't think I would have ever thought like what would happen to this thing if I got rained on, you know, I got wet inside my pack. Um, so, you know, I, I'm surprised how many times, like, I've just, like, sweated through the thing, like, with other layers on. Like, when I did the ice fields, you know, leaving at, like, 5.30 in the morning from Lake Louise and just being totally bundled up and then getting to the top of Bow Pass and just being, um, you know, kind of drenched. There's no way around it because I was just totally insulated. But, mm-hmm. you know, I could easily take it off and it would dry mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. quickly and not have to worry about the, the material inside. So if you didn't have synthetic, like, what happens to that? those kind of jackets like if you if you get them white like can you i get the impression you can't use them or they their quality goes down quite a bit as far as their warmth i guess mainly like that's the one issue with down is that it you know the the actual down clusters will absorb some moisture so you know if, if you put a down jacket through the washing machine when it comes out it's like pancake flat and you need to put it through a dryer to reloft it and you know the warmth in a down jacket comes from its loft or its puffiness. So when you when when it gets wet and the feathers clump, essentially you're losing that loft and the jacket kind of flattens out. So until it has a good chance to dry out, um, you know it's 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 thermal efficiency. It goes way way down while it's wet. With the synthetics, just the main thing is just they don't absorb much water to begin with. So that's why you can you know. I guess do more high output stuff in them um, and not worry about your sweat kind of wetting out clumps of down as you would with the down jacket. So the synthetics will not absorb much moisture. And like you said, like, you know, if you are working really hard on them, I've, I've used mine for like, like skate skiing and I've, it's pretty sweaty. And then by the end of the ski, like I've been dry on the inside, the outside of the jacket's pretty wet. So it shows that, you know, the moisture is being forced out through that outer fabric, which is cool. But yeah, I think, you know, down is, kind of been the go-to for so many years and it still excels at providing like the highest warmth for weight but um if if you're not sure about weather or if you're facing variable conditions a synthetic can be a good good alternative just because it does have that warm when wet performance and it won't like flatten out like down does if it does get wet so Hmm, that's really good to know um and this this might disgust the listeners but of so i've had that jacket for you know uh, going on two years now really and uh in that time span you know i've done arizona trail done uh, you know icefield parkway and a bunch of other all my scouting for the guidebook like it's gone dis it's gone the distance and in all that time i've watched it once i watched it like three weeks ago because i said to sarah i'm like especially after the ice fields when i i really sweated through the thing i said you know people are i i maybe i'm used to it but i gotta assume that this thing's starting to smell or you know maybe i should wash it but i was i was actually pretty kind of paranoid about putting it in and because you know it's it's light and it looks like it might be fragile and i don't know what's going to happen to the material so maybe uh go down that road like help you know put me at ease or 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 maybe i ruined my jacket (laughs) no no it's uh yeah, I, I'm glad you washed it because I still smelled something when I came in. So I can't imagine what it would have been like if you hadn't washed it three weeks ago. Um, no, I definitely, yeah, you know, in our conversation today, like the the, the maintenance, the care of, of outdoor gear is something that, um, you know, we see in, in the sense of getting like warranty pieces come in. So to answer your question, um, 
everything that we make, and I'm going to say the same is probably true for most outdoor gear companies. Like it's designed to be used, but it's also designed to be like washable full stop. Like you look on the care label of any puffy jacket, of any waterproof shell, any soft shell, um, you're going to see some, some care instructions. And I can't stress enough how important it is to, to wash your stuff fairly regularly. Um, maybe more than once every three years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But yeah, like, so, you know, talking about Ryan's jacket being it's a synthetic. It's a fine wine at age Yeah, yeah. So um, don't be afraid to wash your stuff, I guess, is the bottom line. And I have a lot of discussions with people about, you know, a $600 Gore-Tex jacket. They're afraid that it's going to wreck it if yeah, they put exactly. it in the wash. Um, but it'll definitely perform at its best when it's clean. And a really important part of that cleaning is a, a dryer cycle. So if you look on your care label, um, you'll see a little icon that indicates, um, you know, the washing steps and there's, there's a bunch of charts online to show you what those symbols mean. But, um, any of our jackets that we sell machine wash, we do recommend using like a tech wash just cause it rinses out a lot cleaner and it doesn't leave any residue behind in the, in the face fabric, which, you know, can help just attract dirt faster as you wear it again. But washing and then the low heat dryer um, is a really important step. So for an insulated piece like your jacket, um, you know, it kind of re-lofts it a little bit. Like the synthetic that you have doesn't lose its loft like down would. But, you know, a down jacket needs to go through a tumble dry to kind of get lofted. But another big part of that low heat dryer is um, most of our outer jackets will have what's called a durable water repellency. And it's a, it's a chemical finish that's on the outer face of the fabric that helps moisture bead off. Um, so by the beating of rain or snow and rolling off the face fabric, um, it allows the um, breathability or the ability of the piece to transport your sweat and your heat from inside to the outside um, is much, much less impeded when your jacket's clean and beading properly. So, yeah, please, please wash your stuff. And we get a ton of warranties where someone comes in with a raincoat and they say it's leaking. And we ask, when did you wash it? And they say, well, I didn't. I never washed it because it's 500 bucks. I don't want to wreck it. Yeah. And what happens is the outside of the jacket's so dirty that the fabric can't let out any of your um, your body, um, your sweat, your your vapor. <laughs> um, so it's actually you're getting wet from your own sweat on the inside because the jacket isn't breathing properly because um, the outside face fabric is so saturated with dirt and then in turn absorbed moisture. So the jacket's not actually leaking. Um, it's just that your sweat can't get out, so you're actually wetting out from the inside. And that's really common with rain shells is people are afraid to wash them, let alone even think about like looking at a dryer, yeah. but look at your care label just to, you know, make sure, but you'll usually see that at minimum, a low heat dryer, if not a medium heat is recommended for most tech gear. Yeah. So this, I think it was last, yeah, last year before the Alberta Rockies, um, 700, I, well, I, I've had a, a gore. Um, outer shell for for many years that served me quite well and this last year I started noticing that it wasn't really repelling the water like it used to um, so I, I bought one of those sprays that you could put on mm-hmm. and um, you know I've tr- I followed the instructions I, I don't think I did it right it didn't really seem to repel water but like so what what stage do, do those sprays come in or, or do they come in you know, for Patagonia jackets. Yeah, I mean, the, the spray is sort of a, the reapplication of a water repellency, um, helping to reactivate that DWR finish. So usually it's recommended sort of, I don't know, maybe 
five or six years down the road. Um, eventually, like the DWR, the the actual coding, like it will break down over time. Yeah. Um, you know, we're we're proud to tout that we have one of the best. DWRs in the business in the sense that it's been proven to have 80% effectiveness after what's called a killer wash. So we put everything through um, a wash cycle that simulates about eight to 10 years of actual use. And hmm. then we test for waterproofness. So um, as long as you're, I guess, probably like with an older jacket, if it hasn't been washed regularly through its life, um, it could be that the DWR is just gone. So after a few years, basically anytime you notice that the, the nice beading effect hasn't, isn't happening anymore. First thing would be give it a wash, put it through the dryer. If it's still not um, beading nicely, then you might do that spray-on application. And again, that's something that might benefit from a little bit of heat, um, whether it's a dryer or a, a low-heat iron. Um, everything has a lifespan, though. Like yeah. We don't have a lifetime guarantee. We have a satisfaction guarantee on our product. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we don't expect uh, a jacket to last for the lifetime of a user, but if you take care of it and do the regular wash thing. So... Yeah, the tech washes are good. Um, an older jacket would benefit from that spray. So, yeah, I don't know. Your jacket maybe just might be. <laughs> no, I, I I'm pretty sure it's toast. We had this yeah. discussion, but yeah, where I applied it was the, um, it was like the the hotel the, the night before the race, and I laid it out on the. So I think yeah, you got to get it wet first, if I remember. So yeah. put it through the shower and then laid it out on the ground, and then I believe you're just supposed to kind of like just saturate the thing with the the spray and. Uh, leave it overnight um i can't remember if there was supposed to be a heat component but yeah and it didn't really seem to to do anything so yeah i was curious to get your your thoughts on it and i in all likelihood i probably did it wrong but um yeah i mean the sprays usually will will recommend for when people do have an older jacket if uh if they're finding that it's not beading nicely even after washing and drying yeah but usually just a normal tech wash fairly regular washing and fairly um, doing the dryer cycle should keep up the beating effect for a good long time. Well, a good opportunity, good opportunity to get another Patagonia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Enough of this gore stuff. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay. So that's a good segue. Um, so you don't necessarily have, well, you do and you don't. So, um, one of your, <laughs> one of your catalogs, I, I can't remember if you pointed out to me last year or I saw it, but one of your catalogs last, last year had a, uh, on the front cover, like these guys bike packing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you got it right here. <laughs> got it. There it is. So, yeah, the Spring 16 catalog um, that we had in our store. There's uh, two guys bike packing on the cover in in, uh, in the Navajo lands in Utah, and it was really the first time. Um, well, not the first time, but I guess you know Patagonia has always made gear for what they call silent sports, like you know sports that are self-powered that take you to wild places where there's no one cheering you when you top a climb or finish a ski tour. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, mountain biking, bike packing, really is an extension of a lot of Patagonia's philosophies about just getting out there. Um, so yeah, this the cover. Um, this guy uh, Steve Doom Fastbinder. He's a pretty pretty neat guy. Really really cool guy and climber. Um, and this this cover was showing these two guys biking into these badlands of Utah with their pack rafts uh, to go on a climbing and rafting trip. Hmm. Um, and it coincided with the introduction of some actually like bike specific gear for the first time last summer patagonia made a, a pair of bike shorts um you know more mountain bike oriented like a, a baggy with a, a liner that's removable um the dirt craft short they did really really well um in their first season so 
the line uh, in terms of bike specific gear has grown a bit this year with those dirt craft shorts coming back and then a couple of actual like cycling jerseys I guess you could call them with a full zip and you know a few pockets on the back but I think overall Patagonia really strives to make stuff that's multifunctional Um, that's why you don't see a lot of really bike specific stuff like you know one of the nice things and I think I talked a bit at the summit last year is a lot of the attributes that they'll put in design for um, climbers in mind really translate well to cyclists in the sense of like you know longer coverage in the torso generally like slim fits um, thumb loops and nice long arms so you know when you are um, on your bike you got lots of you know the sleeves aren't crawling up on you Um, so a lot of those attributes for climbing specific pieces I think translate well to to um, to bike packing and cycling I mean I have very few like pieces of like bike clothing. I just tend to wear like a, a capoline base layer for most of my rides and it seems to do the job. Obviously there's going to be some sport specific stuff that some bike companies are producing that may yeah. be more well thought out with some bike specific features and things. But, um, yeah, it was cool to see that catalog with the bike packing on the cover and, um, a little bit later, maybe when we talk about some of the environmental um, activism that Patagonia does, there's recently uh, another kind of bikepacking connection and a recent campaign of theirs. It's pretty cool. Okay, yeah. well, well, we'll get into that in a second. So, uh, so it's 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 cool. You, you know, you've got this gear, and and I've kind of, you know, when I was in the store and you and I were talking about the you know a new outer layer and. It's tough for me, like being kind of coming from like a racing background to like, I'm so used to like gear that's specific to, to what I, what I'm doing. And I think, you know, where the middle ground I'm learning to, to navigate and the thing that's cool about bikepacking is that we're bikepacking is kind of always, it's quite often on the fringe testing new gear. And there's, there's not, you know, other than like say salsa making bikepacking sort of bikes there's no kind of real specific gear to what we're doing you know the bags uh, uh, of course so you know we got to take it upon ourselves to you know let down that guard and just because it doesn't have a cyclist on the the cover or something doesn't mean that it's not 100 percent uh useful right yeah yeah. and you know discovering these gears that's 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 really how you know sometimes we we innovate so yeah so but you do have some of the gear you have the shorts you have the the jersey does it, have, does it? Do you know if it had pockets in the back? I like to yeah, snack. That's, so that's, 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 that's my snack pockets. Area. Yeah, you can you can see. Uh, unfortunately, you know, being um, one of the realities of Canada is it's a much smaller market for Patagonia, and and they have their full collection. And then unfortunately, they have to like cut some styles um, just in terms of volume of sales. So sadly, a lot of the bike stuff um, won't reach uh, my store, <laughs> and it's kind of an online-only thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the bike jerseys are, are true, like, you know, in terms of cut and some pocketing in the back. I guess, like, getting back to what you might wear bikepacking, I mean, yeah, there's, you know, there's bikepack racing where some bike-specific, you know, um, spandex shorts, bib shorts, some dedicated cycling jerseys might be what people that are, like, racing the you know the divide or the arizona trail um but for someone who's like into more bike pack touring i guess maybe trying to find some like stuff that's versatile if you are going through some towns where you can like <laughs> pop into a pub and and not feel that you're just you're doing like all spandex on every corner so yeah i guess uh clothing that, that has some versatility and um you know merino wool is like a really good example of something that you can kind of wear for mildly technical use in the sense that it moves moisture pretty well 
doesn't stink as much as synthetics are known to and uh, generally will be kind of like styled pretty plainly so that you can just wear it as like an everyday piece too but also wear it for multiple days in the saddle yeah so the the piece of this i didn't know before is how few patagonia stores there are in canada i just assumed there was quite a bit more so when we had the discussion about the the bike you know packing gear not really being up here yet i just assumed there was enough stores to service it so one you don't have a lot of you know a, a ton of stores not that that's overly important in the internet age but you know, uh, it's you know also important for the the listener, and especially I know we have some American listeners, but you know, like understanding who the, the base that you're serving. So in Canada, I think I heard a stat that the other day there's 36 million people, and in California there's 39 million people. Yeah. So uh, you know, much smaller uh, uh, customer base, and, and you know, the similar amount of stores uh, serving it. So the bike packing gear isn't up here, but that doesn't mean that you don't have a lot of stuff that. Uh, can be used so yeah long, long story sure, short yeah. you can you can always find it online which is you know the way the the shopping world is going these days but um yeah versatility in in their gear i guess is pretty pretty important stuff you could wear for whatever you choose to do outside yeah so why don't let's get back into the social uh, and environmental uh, responsibility side of things is i i don't think it's a surprise to anyone listening that patagonia is um uh, you know, quite often in the, the headlines about uh, something they believe in or something they've dropped out of. And um, so, you know, what, what are some of, some of the kind of uh, things that are top of mind uh, for Patagonia these days as far as, you know, devoting energy to, to practices? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, um, a big one, if you go on the uh, on Patagonia's website, you know, kind of the main homepage banner right now is related to... Um, the Bears Ears National Monument in Utah. And this this does tie in a bit to their recent decision to pull out of the outdoor retailer show as well. Um, but basically, um, yeah, like the Bears Ears is a site containing like thousands of years of archaeological history. It's a very sacred site for a lot of Native Americans. Um, and recreationally, it's a popular area for climbing and, um, and for... I guess bikepacking because if you go on the on on the Patagonia site, it's a really cool kind of multimedia interactive um, uh, micro site within Patagonia, all about the Bears Ears, um, the the struggle to get it preserved as a national monument, which is something the Obama administration implemented, and then more recently, um, the uh, governor, the government, of the state of Utah has tried to um, overturn and rescind that designation and um, basically is trying to get a lot of public lands in Utah um, privatized, um, which opens them up to mineral and exploration and exploitation. Um, so that was a big thing recently is this, this Bears Ears monument recently was designated as a protected area and then just early this year, um, you know, with the new administration, the, the government in Utah is trying to actually sue the federal government to rescind the Bears Ears designation as a national historic uh, site. So um, that's kind of why Patagonia made this decision, like to pull out of the outdoor retailer show is tied into, um, you know, the basically them seeing the governor of Utah not recognizing the value that outdoor recreation brings to the state um, and employs more people um, by far than than the the um, the natural resources industries in that state. Um, so they basically felt that uh, 
the, the Utah government was giving up private lands um, in exchange for, um, or trying to get it to be developable lands. And that just didn't fly in the face with a lot of outdoor industry folks. And I, I know Arcteryx followed Patagonia's suit and also was pulled out of OR as well too. But um, yeah, then getting back to that website, um, if you go on Patagonia's site and click through that Bears Ears uh, site, there's a, a, a section about you know culture, environment, and then sport. And then in the little sport section, there's a little featurette about bikepacking. Um, oh, okay. That's worth checking out. And it's really cool because it's kind of like a multimedia thing. You can pan the camera angles around and follow these guys as they're riding through the, the Utah desert. But, hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it's been a couple, well, probably more than a few weeks since that news of Patagonia pulling out. And this is like a major outdoor retailer show in uh, Utah. I was actually going to go down to it this or I thought about going down to it this year. Um, I, I think the show itself is possibly, I, the last I heard was they were actually looking at moving because they had so many kind of companies, big companies follow suit after Patagonia. Yeah, I mean... Um also, like I, I've heard space-wise too, like the show has just grown to the state where the facility where it uh, happens isn't really big enough to do it properly anymore. Yeah, which is one thing. But yeah, I mean Patagonia, their decision is just kind of one the most recent example in a long line of being an activist company. Um, you know, the founder, um, or very very early on, like he took a stand and. Um, you know, switching his whole business model from creating steel pitons for climbing to creating aluminum chocks because pitons were destroying these rock faces that these beautiful areas they love to climb were being wrecked by the actual gear that they were making to enable people to access them. So, you know, going from having the best and lightest and most well-designed and thought out like pitons and um, hammers at that time, in 1972, their catalog changed entirely. They dropped the whole piton thing and went to promoting aluminum chocks, which you can put in a crack in rock and then remove them without leaving them behind and damaging the rock. Um, so it was like a total 180 um, just at the time when everyone else was catching up to making the same quality pitons as Patagonia or Schwannard equipment, as it was called at that time. They did a, a 180 and went to these removable aluminum chocks and cams that don't damage the rock face. So that was kind of the first sort of eye opener for, um, for Schwannard and seeing like, well, you know, our business has consequences and, and they realize like everything they make has a price and a consequence on the planet. So, um, as an activist company, I mean, they do, uh, they do a lot to try and offset the, the damage that they're causing to the environment, both, you know, by what they make. So, I mean, 1% for the planet is kind of another big one. Um, they started to pledge, at first it was 10% of profits and then it became 1% of sales. So even if they had a really terrible year, they were still pledging a minimum of 1% of their sales to supporting grassroots environmental groups. Um, so to date, that's been over $74 million donated to groups and 1% for the planet um, started by Schrenard and then it's now grown to have about 500 member companies around the world that pledge to give 1% of their sales to, to local groups. So um, for us being an independent store, we, we support some groups locally through that program as well. But, you, uh, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but on that note, I don't remember what you called it, but I made headlines uh, just recently. There was a day where you guys had where you gave 
something like was it 100 percent of your sales or yeah yeah so so black friday um, oh yeah, yeah yeah that was probably another pretty recent one where um you know in, in a few years back patagonia ran an infamous ad in the new york times it was a, a fleece jacket and it said don't buy this jacket <laughs> and it went into um you know their efforts to reduce the the ecological f- footprint of that piece um and really encouraging people to just buy what they need and try to repair things if possible um, this year for Black Friday, um, well, I guess backtracking a bit, like for us as an independent store, um, this was going to be our second year of doing what we called Give Back Friday, where we gave a portion of our sales from our three stores um, to some local groups. Then Patagonia announced they were donating 100% of their sales from Black Friday um, to environmental groups worldwide. So um, we were encouraged to kind of participate in that as well, even though we're not corporate. Like we were encouraged to you know have consistency in what we were doing. So um, yeah, in essence, we we had committed to the 20% giving back through our three stores, and then the 100% as well on top of that. So anyway, last. So uh, you, did you live off tuna for a few weeks? Yeah, yeah ramen a lot of noodles. Mr. Noodles. <laughs> no, I mean it was it was. There's always a ripple it's, effect somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it really is cool. I mean, it's uh, you know we did have a lot of people coming in the store that day saying, "Where are your sales?" And we'd explain, "Well, actually, we're not. We don't have a sale, but we're doing this." Yeah. And you know, twenty five percent of the people would like be, "Oh, I want a sale," and walk out. But it ended up that worldwide Patagonia ended up. Um, with sales of $10 million in that one day, um, the black Friday prior, the year prior, they had had like $2 million in sales worldwide and a hundred percent of that was given away. So that was pretty amazing. Hmm. Yeah. That's kind of a one-off, like very powerful statement of, uh, giving back. It's a, it's a good time to, uh, set up bike pack Canada as a registered charity. And me thinks, um, uh, so yeah, I know we're going on some tangents, but um, I, I hope you can we chat about the plastics uh, in the the ocean? Does yeah, it, yeah, for sure. The, I yeah. found this like super yeah. interesting. I didn't know anything about this, yeah. and it, it's like one of those facts when you hear it, you're like, oh wow, I, I don't see how we're going to pull ourselves out of this one. But yeah, yeah. so yeah, plastics. I mean, um, at its heart, polyester fleece, polyester clothing is. Uh, made from oil so going back you know patagonia really made a lot of efforts to try and uh, make fleece out of anything but virgin polyester so at first they found a way to recycle pop bottles and turn them into fleece and um you know that diverted however millions bottles of uh plastic bottles out of landfills and turn them into into fleece sorry that's how you make fleece yeah, like I, 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 this is the first I've heard that. Yeah, no, at its heart, like um, yeah, basically, like polyester is a, a fabric that is basically comes from fossil fuels. So to make virgin polyester mm-hmm. um, requires inputs of, of oil. Okay. Uh, so if you can find a way to get alternative sources of post-consumer content polyester, so the actual plastic in pop bottles can be melted down and then extruded into polyester fibers. Um, that's a very simple explanation, but, um, and then more recently, like Patagonia will take back, um, old polyester and recycle it into virgin polyester again. And that whole energy process still uses far less energy than making new polyester from oil. So, um, but yeah, more recently, I mean, 
you'll see it when you wash clothes. Like you're, you're, if you put stuff through the dryer, you know, you're going to see in your lint trap a bunch of stuff <laughs> coming off your clothing. Um, but there's much, much smaller microscopic particles that escape that lint trap and get into, into the water supply. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a, a big problem with clothing being a large contributor to, um, you know, polyester pollution, just small bits of, of clothing getting into the water supply and into oceans. So what can we do about it? Um, Patagonia has recognized that it is an issue. Um, you know, they, they have focused more on sort of the, I guess the production of the piece rather than what happens to the piece once it's out there and, and as it degrades, like what kind of responsibility can they take to help mitigate that? Mm-hmm. So right now I know they're trying to find, um, alternatives to, um, to the production process that will result in less kind of pilling and loss of material when you do wash pieces. Generally, like the cheaper fleeces that you can get out there too, lose a lot, much more material than some of the stuff that we make. Um, washing clothes less frequently, <laughs> which hey, maybe you're a I, fan I'm of. I'm saving the world. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, there's no real easy solution to it right now. A lot of the material that is coming off clothing does get um, caught by municipal um, water filtration, like treatment plants. It does catch a lot of that, but there's still a lot getting into the ocean. Um, one thing right now, um, there's a company that is, I don't know if it's still in the Kickstarter phase or not. I don't think, I think they're in production, but I think they're called guppy bags and it's basically like a fine mesh bag to put your polyester items in when you put them through the wash cycle. And I know Patagonia stores in the U S and Europe are going to be selling those, um, at cost. Um, so not making any money on them, but they're going to start selling those through all their stores and they are educating people more about, you know, you're buying this fleece garment. Here's what you can do to mitigate the amount of uh, material that's coming off it and getting into the water supplies. But as long as we're making um, garments out of polyester, it will it will be an issue. I think Patagonia's definitely recognize that they're that's an issue and they're guilty as much as anyone else that makes Patagonia cl- or polyester clothing that they're contributing to this. But um, back to Pete, trying to mitigate it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really tough. I mean. Um, you know, the same thing like, you know, nylon is a very chemical intensive fabric to make. Um, so, you know, we do make a lot of things out of recycled nylons, but at the same time, a lot of customers expect the quality and performance um, from a, a Patagonia jacket is, you know, they expect a certain standard and sometimes you just can't get there with recycled fabrics. Um, but, you know, in the seven years that I have worked there, it's gone from like very, very few styles having any recycled content to large numbers of styles having at least a certain percentage of recycled content. So right now the big thing is trying to make a better hard shell. So a waterproof jacket is going to have a lot of chemical processes in terms of the Gore-Tex membrane or the H2NO membrane, which is our waterproof standard. Um, and then like trying to get into more recycled nylons that have the same performance as, as virgin nylon. But yeah, it is hard, and yeah, they um, they're not they're not perfect by any means. So. But yeah, the guppy bags, check that out. Guppy bags. Yeah, we're gonna try to get them for our store too, and it's just a way to keep more of that uh, debris from polyester pieces from getting into the water supply. Yeah, yeah. Huh. yeah I, I um, was listening to some podcasts last week where they were talking about how there's this 
I don't remember the, the exact terminology of, of how you describe the plastics, but these kind of microplastics, uh, like a sea of them, uh, you know, a large mass of them, like the size of Texas, uh, floating around in the, in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've uh, kind of all combined and, you know, get into the fish and things like that. And yeah, it's, it's, it's scary stuff. It's not always the things that you can see. It's the things you can't see. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm kind of dovetailing here. I, you, I see this book you've got here. I've seen it in the store a few times. It's by, um, Yvonne. Yvonne. Yeah. yeah. Yvonne Chouinard, uh, let my people go surfing. What's that one all about? I, I'm, well, a, I'm an avid reader, so I'm curious. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll get you the, the, the revised edition actually just, uh, came out recently and we just got them in the store yesterday. So I'll get you a, a new copy. This is the, the original version from 2005. Um, basically the, it's the story of Patagonia. Um, it's a history, it's a, a business and, um, philosophical manifesto on, on, um, you know, their sort of first 40 years of business. Really, really interesting read. Very, very funny at times. I mean, you know, Schrenard, uh, grew up, um, you know, in rural Maine as he's, you know, raised by a French Canadian, um, French Canadian background, but grew up in Maine and, um, his family moved to California when he was quite young and, uh, you know, basically this like outcast kid that like struggled with school and like spent as much time as he could like off like fishing or like going diving for, for lobster off the coast of uh, Malibu or going climbing. But, um, it was really when he, he joined a falconry club and, um, they would actually like rappel down cliffs to, to, um, check out falcon nests and things hmm. like that. And that's really what got him into climbing. And they started like thinking, oh, we can climb up these crags as well too. So a really interesting book though. Um, the Let My People Go Surfing title sort of refers to uh, the Patagonia philosophy of, um, you know, kind of encouraging people to embrace their, their passions in the outdoors uh, as long as they get the work done kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, but, definitely doesn't come across as the suit and tie A-type. No. It sounds kind of more like an accidental business well not accidental but not purposely uh you know business driven from from right sunrise to sunset no yeah i mean um the subtitle is the education of a reluctant businessman there we go that's good (laughs) so uh yeah it's a really it's a very funny read um you know he's he's a very neat guy i've had the chance to meet him a couple times in person he was in our bamf store a few years ago uh for the mountain film festival there was a film called damnation that was produced by patagonia that was screening and it was all about uh uh, the drive to remove like basically deadbeat dams in the U.S. and, and hmm. Canada, dams that were no longer um, functioning or had silted up and trying to restore uh, marine habitat to some of these dead rivers. Anyway, he came to the store. Uh, that was his first time in the BAM store and, you know, just wandering around chatting with the staff. And, uh, you know, if you chat like skiing or climbing or fishing, like he just would like light up. And hmm. and as soon as you started maybe edging towards business chat, he kind of would like hunch over a bit and like kind of start looking away. And yeah. <laughs> um, then the second time I met him was actually in Ventura uh, at the Patagonia campus. So Ventura being about an hour north of L.A. Um, yeah. is where he originally started with his tin shed um, with a... A piton or a forge and an anvil, and as a self-taught blacksmith, that's where he'd hammer out his his pitons and stuff when he wasn't out mm-hmm. surfing. Um, but we actually had the opportunity to watch him make some pitons one day. He had a media group from uh, Korea uh, in uh, on the campus, and he stuck his head in the showroom where we were working on our our buy for the store, and 
He's like, oh yeah, the Banff guys, yeah, come on over to the forge. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a piton later. So we actually like it was really cool to see him like hmm. still hammering away and making these hand forged pitons, and uh, mentioning that in the early days when he was making you know sort of a dollar fifty per piton and could do two a day, um, you know, because this hot forge was uh, always going. Um, as surfers would come up from the beach, they they started to uh, just like cook chicken thighs and stuff on this. <laughs> on this forge and uh and then sell them to the surfers coming up the beach and he said sometimes we made way more money selling barbecued chicken than we did selling climbing <laughs> gear in those early days so it's funny yeah. um you just reminded me of something um and i think this is not so well known so obviously there's patagonia the clothing and you know we talked about some of the social and, and environmental initiatives but there's this kind of like uh seems to be there's quite a few other branches like the you and i were talking about the uh, you know the the documentary and so is there like a kind of a media house side of it? there's is there food side of yeah it? yeah Patagonia provisions um, is the food side of things yeah. and uh, I think that's maybe like three or four years old now um, so you know looking ahead to the future and seeing um, food as being kind of the next major sort of environmental crisis yeah. the availability of food the availability of um, you know getting food that's non-gmo or organic so patagonia provisions essentially started small with um, you know some like energy bars they have some um, salmon jerky um, mm. but yeah trying to trying to get like you know, the salmon comes from sustainably um, harvested fish up in northern bc or i think Schonard goes for a lot of fishing trips okay um so yeah patagonia provisions i mean the the media side of it they do support a lot of uh, filmmakers like jumbo wild was another right. movie um uh two two winners ago i guess that the push for awareness around the the proposed jumbo glacier project in in bc yeah. um so that was another film that they, they supported. Um, cool. So the clothing, documentary, investment, food, are, are there any other branches? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a kind of a, a, it's almost like a venture capital side of things called 20 Million and Change, where, um, the, where they've dedicated a, a fund to support um, basically other other small businesses that are starting up that have you know similar values and focuses to patagonia in terms of environmentalism or, or um, philosophies around around business that, that mesh well so yeah 20 million and change is basically a funding um, opportunity for for startups do you think bike pack canada could apply for for 20 dollars and change uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to start low <laughs> Start yeah, that's a good good starting. People point. don't turn you down so easily. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, let's round it back. Um, so we know you got the Green Guru bag. Um, you won all the cash and prizes. Yeah. So um, you've already gone on a few or one fun trip that I know of this year, uh, scouting out. Um, where was it again? You guys were on the Spray the, River. Yeah, the Spray Valley, which um, basically runs. You know, I guess it would be. Well, it runs sort of in a northwesterly direction from Spray Lake towards Banff. Yeah. And it's a valley that's closed um, for most of the year from mid-November till till April. It's closed every year. Or sorry, from April till mid-November. Yeah. So, yeah, it opens up and um, a few of us had sort of wanted to explore that area. You know, I've, I've seen it on maps for years and was always curious about about the landscape back there. Yeah. 
Apparently so. it's a lot of hiking in here. Yeah. Yeah. We started from Banff. Um, it turned into about an 11 hour a day and, uh, really neat. It was just, um, yeah, a good kind of early season fat bike, um, exploration trip, really, uh, really fun riding, getting into some really remote parts of, uh, the park that, uh, don't see a lot of human traffic. So a lot of the trail was pretty overgrown and there's a lot of deadfall and there's a lot of debris from the 2013 floods at any drainage that you crossed. Mm-hmm. And about 30 K in from Banff, uh, you, you get to, uh, the spray warden cabin and that would be a good kind of turnaround point to head back from Banff because it's pretty much like 90% rideable to there. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, um, the trail really, uh, peters out in terms of any sort of maintenance at all so really overgrown lots of deadfall and you get into some pretty big burn areas where the deadfall increases um but then in these burn areas because of the lack of trees to anchor the soil every single drainage was a huge like gaping (laughs) washout and uh with kind of early winter conditions with snow and half frozen creeks there's probably about 10 10 of these washout crossings um that really slowed our day and, uh, Made for an, an epic rescue operation. Yeah, yeah. We ended up calling in, calling in the troops. We made it to the payphone on the Spray Lake Road at about eight thirty at night after being out for eleven hours. There's a a payphone right near the Spray Dam, and the only reason it's there, uh, an EMT friend told me, is that there's a, a downhill and then a sharp turn, and there's a a tree there that people always hit when they come into that corner too fast. And so huh. they ended up putting a payphone there because there's so many accidents over the years. But it's right on the uh, Spray Lakes Road. Um, there's like an old ranger cabin. So we made it to there at 8.30 at night out of um, four sets of lights. We had one working headlamp. Uh, we had a broken chain. We'd had some uh, some hamstring cramping issues with one of our guys. It was snowing. Um, really fun outing. Definitely a neat area to explore. Uh, you got to kind of time it well. But I, I wouldn't recommend the... Spray Lake to the Spray Warden Cabin is pretty much unrideable and um, very, very hard to get through uh, these washed out drainages. So. Hmm. I, I hate to say it, but I'm like, hmm, I, I think I'm still good. I'm I, curious now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, uh, Megan that you chatted with uh, last night, I guess she, uh, she also was sort of jealous at, at our description of what a fun outing it was. But, oh, and... and- by the way, uh, and I've been messing this up for over a year, and I think I did it at the start of the podcast. It's Megan. Megan. Oh, Megan. Sorry, Megan. Yeah, no, she, and she won't admit it, but <laughs> I, I'm trying to get it right. So, okay, so you, so you got one pretty was, big trip out of the way. Any other uh, trips top of mind for this year? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm, I'm very new to the bikepacking world, uh, kind of, you know, my interest was peaked with meeting so many tour divide riders that come through the Banff store uh, every year in June. And, um, I guess my first bike packing experience would have been my second summer in Banff when I just loaded up my 90 liter mech backpack and got on my mountain bike and, and rode out to the LM8 campsite where those guys went last weekend. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I, I'm very, very green to the world of bike packing. And now that I have this uh, nice seat bag, the, the gear kits coming together, but, um, yeah, just chatting with a few uh, other folks that are at the summit. Um, a couple guys from Banff, uh, there's been talk about maybe trying to do the, uh, the Kootenai gravel grinder, oh, that's good one. sort of the, that loop that leaves out a Kimberly or Cranbrook or yeah Fern. well ironically uh, uh, I'm that is the guidebook chapter that I, I need to finish today so oh, okay. um, yeah the the chapter pretty closely follows the, the 
the, well, I, I don't want to say race, but event route. So Cranbrook up through uh, the Wild Horse River Valley up to Top of the World uh, Provincial Park. And then you descend down to White Swan Lake and then back south through the Bull River Valley and uh, up and over the range to Fernie. And then I, I'm not sure where the race goes from there. I can't remember, but the route that I've got has you like um, circling around the, the basically the west perimeter of the Flathead Valley over to Elko mm-hmm. and then through kind of the flat grasslands uh, to Kickman uh, Creek Provincial Park and then okay. back roads uh, to Cranbrook. I, I know the race pretty closely followed that, but there's been years where they've gone like right through the Flathead Valley. Okay. But, uh, yeah. So like kind of my lead off paragraph for that chapter is like, if I was to point anyone to, uh, geez, I can't remember how I phrased it, but like kind of to, to showcase route, like that would show in the summer anyways, like extreme physicality of like what a bike packing route could be in the Rockies. Um, with kind of the the grandeur aspect of it too, that mm-hmm. that would be kind of where I would point more of a intermediate to advanced rider. Okay. Um, especially that first section from not from well from Cranbrook to Fort Steele that's paved, but from Fort Steele all the way up to top of the world, it gets um, you know more rugged as you get, go up and all the way to like an ATV track. Like there's like some hike a bike and okay awkward directions but it's yeah no it's it's a it's a really good really good route yeah if you're gonna do one this year that's, that's yeah i mean i'm definitely not at all into uh i'm not a racer by any means i mean i think uh my one bike being a, a fat bike <laughs> sort of precludes any record-breaking times but no i'm just I, I have a love of maps i mean i love this area and i think i maybe mentioned to you trying to figure out a way to you know start from canmore and do sort of a big loop that would take in uh you know, the down through the spray, kind of following the divide route to Kananaskis Lakes. And then from there, you can um, cross Highway 40 and go past Elbow Lake and get onto that big elbow, little elbow loop. And the one piece of the puzzle that I'm not sure about is the Evan Thomas Pass that would bring you back to the Highway 40 Valley. And then from there, you can make your way, um, you know, north uh, and then through Skogan Pass back to Canmore. So that was just kind of a, an idea for maybe a two or three night route, but I'm, I'm having trouble finding about that Evan Thomas pass. I don't know if anyone out there has uh, been on it lately, but it basically connects highway 40 to, um, the big elbow, little elbow loop, which is a, a great ride as well as using just a day, day loop. But yeah, I can't remember where we left that discussion, but in my head, I, I think it doesn't go all the way through. So the way, the only way to get through is, um, Oh, I can't remember the trail, but it's, it's towards the, uh, top of, uh, Highwood pass. There's a hiking trail up to elbow lake. So the headwaters of the elbow river. Yeah. And then I think you can, yeah, cut in and down, uh, that way to the, to the loop. Uh, but I, ha- I still have it on my calendar. Yeah, so I think the alternate would be once you do, once you kind of get onto that elbow loop, is uh, instead of going Evan Thomas Pass, you could um, very easily get onto the Powder Face Trail and kind of have a gravel ride uh, north that would bring you back towards the Kananaskis Village area eventually. And yeah. if you're adventurous, you could do the whole Jumping Pound Cox Hill 
ridge right. ride. Yes. <laughs> Which might be fun with a loaded bike. I think I've seen some people have done it, though. Oh, well, Megan was telling me yesterday about doing it with the kids. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Dude, is this, you... I, I had to hike all the way up to I think it was Cox Hill. I'm like I can't imagine doing that with like kids and yeah, fully loaded trailer. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> cool. Well, uh, let's let's wrap it up. I always try to keep them at about an hour here. So um, yeah, I think you know the best way to to wrap this up is um, I think we'll get you back at the, the summit if you're available, and I'm sure we can find a new talk or, or something to you know, maybe just a participant this year, but, uh, yeah, have you back and, um, you know, speaking or not, I, I thank you again for, uh, you know, the swag and contribution and yeah. openness to, to building the, the, not only the local scene, but I, I think this kind of filters out to, um, you know, the rest of Canada. So thanks for being a, a willing partner All in right. that regard. Yeah. Thanks. And, uh, it's a Friday. It's ten thirty. You should probably be at work or something, shouldn't you? It's it's my weekend. Oh, is yeah, it? Yeah. If it warms up, maybe a bike ride this aft. We'll see. Okay. It's pretty cold. It's for anyone listening. It's what minus twenty. Minus good 20. wind chill. It's still winter. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Thanks, Tim. Hey, and, thanks, uh, Ryan. Yeah, it's been great. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs>